brand is more important than it's ever been. Companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is. Hi, this is Brian Marcy, Editor-in-Chief of Digiday. On this week's Digiday podcast, I was joined by Kevin Delaney. He is the co-president and editor-in-chief of Quartz. Quartz is now five years old. And Kevin and I discuss everything from why ads can still work, the pivot to video, whether Quartz will add a subscription model, and Quartz also doing more in lifestyle content. And also, we do a little conversations about the state of global economics. It's a great conversation. Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. You were here two and a half years ago. Wow. And I wanted to have you back because I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the talk a lot. Um, and now it's five years in to Quartz. Um, it's funny because we've been covering Quartz since the beginning. Um, so give me two to three lessons from it so far. I mean, you made it to five. That's good. Yeah, things are great. So the, the founding mission of Quartz was to show that quality content could thrive in our digital era. This is sort of like what the journalists who um, who came to it and the the commercial people, the marketing folks, what we're all set on doing. And I think five years in, we can say that that actually is true. You can write smart stuff that reaches a broad audience and is underpinned by a business model that actually makes it viable to do that. So that's one thing that I think our sort of super high level, we can now say with confidence. Check. It's possible. It's definitely possible. And I'm all evidence to the contrary. Yeah. And there's lots of data points, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, in the, the sort of headwinds that media faces and has faced over the last five years, but it's definitely possible. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is at a moment when people are losing confidence in advertising, I think we still have confidence in advertising. We think you can do quality advertising to a very qualified readership that's global and actually have a business model uh, that works. And so five years in, uh, we, re we retain confidence in that. We think that advertising has been done in, in a way that's not super friendly to readers. Uh, pop-ups and um, various pre-rolls that go on play on for eternities and yeah the examples are rife and there's a i think the pivot to video is actually a pivot to autoplay video oh that's, no that's that's scary yeah. it's depressing so um so that's the second you know the second thing is that we believe in advertising as a foundation for what courts will be over the next and this five is at years. a time that both of those things are uh, a lot of people are losing faith in both of those things um we've sort of seen a race to the bottom a little bit uh, with um, digital media because everyone's chasing algorithms. Um, and we've also seen a lack of a loss of faith in, in advertising. A lot of people are, are adding on subscriptions. They're, they're grasping for commerce. Um, they're the, pivoting to video. They're pivoting yeah. to video. They're looking to TV. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, our conviction is that you can actually make it work. And as you know, five years ago when we started Quartz, we designed our website for mobile before desktop when only 15%, one 5% of visitors to most news sites were using their mobile phone. Today, over 70% of the visitors to Quartz's site come from mobile and tablet devices. And for most big news sites, it's at least 50%. And so uh, we at the time decided not to have standard IAB ads. We've never carried a standard IAB unit, which again was something that people thought was insane. Um, and, and we used email newsletters five years ago as a product in themselves, something you would enjoy mm -hmm. when you woke up in bed and not and the something, direct connection. 
Yeah, and a direct connection and not something whose sole purpose, as was the case for most email newsletters at the time, was to drive you back to a non-mobile optimized website so that they could show you IAB ads. And so just to, to make the point, like we have confidence this is working. We're focused on a specific segment, which is the business news segment, which mm-hmm. I know from working in the Wall Street Journal for years as well, is a specific se- segment and has some economics that actually help us in this given the readers it's and a the valuable audience people you get higher cpms than a general news audience yeah and it's a global audience you know there are we have actually very deliberately reached out to business professionals around the world uh, we have millions of readers in india we have readers in africa we have readers and have invested very deliberately in having uh, journalistic and commercial presences around the world and you're able to sell because that is that's sort of what Quartz is about. So you're able to sell those audiences, whereas a lot of people, either they're trying to package them in or their advertiser is saying, wait, I'm not paying for the people in India. Yeah, and I think that we have a, like, we have a powerful story, which is that we reached, when you look at the latest Ipsos 2017 survey and you look at The Economist, The Financial Times, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all of them, we actually index higher according to the latest data than all those places in terms of C-suite, in terms of people who travel, in terms of business decision makers. And so we have an audience that is a global audience that actually is, you know, the dream of a lot of the marketers who are trying to reach this group of people. On top of that, there are two things that I think make it particularly special and interesting. One is that our audience is younger. So the median age is in the 40-ish range, which is younger than the traditional business news organizations. And the latest data I've seen is that our uh, audience is 52% female, whereas most business news organizations are, are 40% female or actually even less than that. And so for... Uh, readers, but also for marketers, we actually have this super qualified business decision makers global audience that's unlike most of the other ways they can reach such audiences in being younger. So the next generation CEOs and maybe not the kind of stuffy boardroom and also more female, uh, which is an audience that they seem to be interested in reaching, you know, given the opportunity. So a lot of your competitors um, have subscription models. Right. And that was the sort of I think that was the that was the advantage you had going in. You're like, we're going to have a free model. We're going to do advertising better. We're going to make it work. Obviously, dual revenue streams has its attractiveness. Um, But then we're not going to be as mass as like a business insider. There are no you're not doing any any cheese shows, right? No cheese shows, no aircraft carrier slideshows. (laughs) Okay. Um, is that fair to say like that you were looking to sort of operate, um, between those two? Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair. You know, as you know, I was managing editor of WSJ.com, which was one of the most successful subscription sites early on. And so knew the subscription dynamic really well and came into courts thinking like, we have an opportunity to reach people on their phones where it's not always easy to log in to actually show them ads that they're ready uh, to engage with and which carry high CPMs. So actually stand a shot of actually funding uh, this business. And we want to reach a global audience. And as soon as you put a paywall in front of these people, you put tremendous friction 
um, in, you know, in your growth. And there were cautionary tales there. We, we were launched not long after the daily, which was the news corps iPad experiment had no presence, no real free option. It was all subscription and ultimately failed. But now all of a sudden everyone's coming back to subscription. You've got the information and we've got the, the athletic just launched. They're trying to do, um, I'm trying to get them on the podcast. We're arranging schedules, but they're trying to do it for local sports. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on with, with subscription and I think it seems like a lot of media is coming back to this uh, very old-fashioned notion that two revenue streams, two yeah. strong revenue streams, is better. Yeah, than Yeah, of course. No, and and you know we're very focused on advertising as a foundation, and um, we're now selling things to people for more or less the first time. We sold some T-shirts uh, with the macroeconomic joke on them at one point in the life of courts, but we now... Kevin, that's not going to scale. We now... Well, Macroeconomic jokes we sold, scale. We sold a thousand of those. It's better than microeconomic jokes, we, though. They yeah, definitely don't No, scale. you're right. But we sold a thousand of those faster than we could actually... Okay, so commerce is, is, is an opportunity. But why not, why not add in a subscription element? Yeah, I, you know, I think over time, we have a business readership that is, um, that is accustomed to paying for quality information. And um, the core of courts will always remain free. We believe that this is a, a global opportunity supported by advertising um, that, is a, that is an advertising supported model. But we do believe that there are adjacent models, adjacent areas in which we can actually uh, provide professional quality information that people are accustomed to paying for. And so earlier this year, we actually brought on two uh, researchers there in the area of AI, and they do business research. Uh, Dave and Helen Edwards, and we've been quietly testing models for actually selling research to uh, business okay, readers so you over think the you course can, of this you can, year. You can add on subscriptions as a ancillary model. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you think research because um, I always wonder. Because I mean, how many how many visitors do you get a month? Uh, in August, we had twenty two million unique visitors. Okay, so twenty two million. It's it's not. I mean, it, that used to be big. Um, nowadays. <laughs> Who we knows? can, you know, it's over a hundred if you count Apple News yeah. and Google and um, over a hundred million. But I wonder if you can, I mean, like research and AI is very niche. Like, like sometimes I wonder whether yeah. that works necessarily with as broad, if you're a global business brand. And so that by itself is, is fairly broad. Um, whereas like, I would think that having a subscription that is that focused would be more difficult for a for that. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't spend too much time on AI research because we're still testing it and actually... Yeah, uh, but just in general about subscriptions. I mean, the, the, the hard part about subscriptions is is operating two different businesses. We want to get as big of an audience as possible that's that's within our area. At the same time, we want to get people to pay. And so how do you do it? And so we create something totally different because then people don't get confused. Yeah, I think, you know, when we have 22 million uh, visitors a month coming to QZ.com alone... Um, and we cover, we have a number of reporters already covering artificial intelligence. I would argue that it's one of the most important areas and least understood areas for business people outside of, you know, North Korea and, um, and things like that, that um, it's an area that, that the C-suite of businesses and others within the business actually are having a hard time like getting their head around. I'm running a big entertainment company. Surely AI affects lots of ways in which I do business, but how specifically? Um, and that's the sort of thing that Dave and Helen have been doing, and that's the sort of offering that we've been uh, looking at. And uh, so we, so that's clearly different from the journalism that our 
technology reporters are doing every day and we think is actually a good business over time but but super premature to talk about you know what that looks like beyond we'll, that we'll dig into it later are you pivoting to video with everyone else so a uh, part of my background is in video i was a documentary and public affairs television producer in montreal early in my career. And when we created Quartz, I decided that we weren't going to do video right away because I knew that it was easy to do poorly and it was easy to do lose money on it. And so we waited. And about two years ago, we created what we called our video lab. And this video lab is a group of video and journalistic polymaths. So people like your colleagues here who are capable of doing lots of different things, recording a podcast, recording a video, doing mm -hmm. capable of telling stories in different forms, basically. And we set out and we published video almost exclusively uh, directly onto Facebook, which is the world's best laboratory for doing so and, and seeing what people actually watch and they don't and how Quartz could manifest itself as a news organization uh, to, to the world in the form of video. And so... Two years later, we actually have a bigger team who's working on video and they're continuing, they're producing series for that we're distributing on YouTube and Facebook and other uh, platforms in addition to our own site. Mm -hmm. um, and we're publishing video daily. We have had something close to... But it's a compliment to tell. Yeah, it's another way to tell stories. And and we're not, you know, I think as you alluded to earlier... You're not being dragged into it no. because uh, you have no other business model. No, we're not doing this. Um, I think the pivot to video is code word for we don't know what our business model uh -oh. is and <laughs> out of desperation uh, some news organizations are looking to video as the sort of the holy grail of finding a business model that's actually not the case at all and then i know from having worked in the television production business that you know i have questions about how profitable or how you know ultimately desirable that is as a as a business which is which why just because of the cost basis that people are underrating that part yeah i think so in television news there is a real cost it is a different business producing video for television channels than it is producing a you know 90 second video that you roll on facebook and it's a business model that's been around for decades it's not like there's this great they're good at it yeah, they're good at it. They're established players. They're established rates and um, and profit margins. And the last I checked, they're not insane, insanely high. And so that's another risk. Even if people successfully pivot to video, um, does is that capable of subsidizing all these other things they dream of doing? That's a question mark for me. Yeah. How about Facebook dependency? We've seen a lot of publishers dependent on Facebook and you guys get a lot of traffic, yeah. traffic from Facebook. Yeah, you know, our starting point with Facebook has always been that they made Quartz possible in some way. So we started, you know, September 24th, 2012, zero readers. That's super sobering. And there are a number of platforms that we we're able to use to build up to where we are today. And Facebook is among them. And so we've managed, you know, as I was saying earlier, we have this super qualified global business uh, readership which we found through mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and other platforms where those readers have found our content uh, through it. But how do you make sure that, that the court's content doesn't get dictated by Facebook in some ways, the Facebook algorithm? And that because global business is very fungible. I mean, you could, 
pretty much cheese. I mean, global business people are interested in cheese, so you could do cheese. I mean, you, I, I go back to BI because I think they've done a really good job in building a scale business. I mean, Henry was just here. At the same time, the elasticity of, of what is business is, is, I didn't know it could stretch that far. Yeah, I mean, I think to be fair, the traditional business news organizations in places like the Wall Street Journal and Reuters and Bloomberg and the FT have actually stretched the business category pretty far. The Wall Street Journal is... But they've come back a little bit too. I mean, some of it is is driven by just having to cut costs. They all have fashion magazines. They have... Well, that's just for journal. ad dollars. Well, so, um, you know, I think there is some legitimacy to this idea that you're serving a business reader who has many interests, which include things that are not... So what do you not do then? Because business people are just people. Uh... That's a good question. You know, in some ways, when you ask the question about business news, how we think about it, one thing that we don't do is we don't do um, in a kind of earnest and sort of automatic way, quarterly bank earnings or things like that, which have been the mainstay as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal for years. I wrote hundreds of quarterly earnings stories. And I totally agree that there is some sort of like, value to journalists learning how to cover companies by by covering earnings. But I don't think that's particularly reader friendly, ultimately. And today, anyone who wants to know what how many um, earnings per share that a specific company made doesn't go to a place like Quartz and probably not even the Wall Street Journal at this point to, yeah. to find that. No, the robots are going to be doing The it. robots are telling each other what the EPS for yeah. you know Exxon was in the latest quarter. Um, and so we don't actually do that stuff out of any, we're not sentimental about that stuff. And so, you know, among the things I'd point to today is like, we have really good coverage of cryptocurrency, global coverage. We have reporters who've gone into the Bitcoin mines in Inner Mongolia through these server farms that are like mm-hmm. kind of chaotic and there's water all over the place. And it's just like not what you'd expect to see. And then we just interviewed with this great piece last week with Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winning economist on um on bitcoin which he believes is one of the great bubbles of our time and um and so that's the sort of stuff that we do we we try and take you to inner mongolia where the sort of mining or the the sort of formative activity of this crazy global speculative financial cryptocurrency is happening and actually show you what's going on there and also pull in people like robert schiller to to sort of counterbalance some of the euphoria or at least react to what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Explain Quartzy. So Quartzy is a lifestyle newsletter uh, today, and it's Jenny Avens, who's been our fashion and lifestyle reporter for a while, anchors this with contributions from other people. It's a weekly newsletter, and it is in the lifestyle area. So there's service elements, there's fashion, travel, a fair bit of food, and with a bit of... Um, cultural and you know wellness is not the right word but so this is sort of pushing on the elasticity of the brand yeah i mean yes and no i mean i think if you you view the brand as being a sort of uh covering finance and corporates and all these things very literally then yes but if you view uh both these things as industries and actually global business people as people who are among the most avid travelers Mm -hmm. and purchasers of fashion and cars and consumers of fine food. It's totally coherent um, with that, with serving that audience. And so 
our big uh, two of our big pushes this fall are in two areas that are very adjacent to the core of Quartz. So one is Quartzy. So we're actually taking this email newsletter and building an addition around it, hiring some staff, pulling in some of our existing staff to rethink the formula for a, a lifestyle magazine. So you're going in the lifestyle direction. Yeah. But just in a Quartzy way. Correct. Yeah. And we're, you know, we are more global in how we look at this stuff. I think we're pretty intellectually engaged. We're sort of a nerdy group of journalists and readers when we also don't take ourselves too seriously and mm-hmm. so i think you add those things together and you actually will see something that's different in kind right different so it'll be a differentiated take i mean because the world doesn't need more yeah. food content yeah, i no. think i think at this point we're covered on yeah that. and we're less like we're we'll be less literal about and we are less literal about what luxury means and actually you know as as we've all read like luxury is having experience as opposed to buying like sort of showy expensive things for for an increasing number of people. So that's the first area. The second area is management. And so our careers, workplace, leadership, management coverage is among the most popular category of coverage on Quartz today. And we see a real opening to write for our reader, the next generation C-suite, the engaged global business professional who's probably a bit more tech savvy than, than you know, their father. Um, and so we, we see an opportunity to continue to, uh, what's, what's the sort of differentiated, um, take there? I mean, cause there's a ton of like careers cause I mean, it does well on LinkedIn. Yeah. And actually to be, to be actually pretty open, like our career stuff is not driven by LinkedIn at all. You know, LinkedIn okay. has its own management and careers content is very happy to put that in front of readers, <laughs> uh, doesn't need courts in any way. So that's not, um, you know, that's not a primary driver. Um, you know, our differentiator is uh, where, you know, you have traditional management workplace coverage, which can be dry and academic. It's rigorous, which is good, and is focused on Fortune 500 companies or industries. Like HBR. That sort of thing. On the other hand, you have, I think, a really interesting group of uh, writers who are coming up through podcasts and medium and they're writing on venture capital firms, blogs, and places like that. There's like a really interesting conversation about practices and ideas about how you structure a company, how you um, how you operate at various levels of startups or actually even bigger organizations. I think that there's an opportunity in the middle there. We can actually bring some of the rigor of traditional business news and management reporting, but actually kind of an openness to... Um, the ideas and experiences of people who are entrepreneurs and who aren't necessarily academics or, um, and we can write articles that will take different forms than the traditional earnest 1800 word, you know, kind of tried and true piece about um, supply chain management in Mm -hmm. the produce industry or or whatever else it is. (laughs) Um, So how many people uh, is Quartz now? Quartz is, by the end of the year, will be over 200. I don't know precisely where okay. we are now. Yeah, we're two, well, let's the, say we're 200 something people. Um, and 29 million um, monthly users. Is that scale for Quartz? I mean, there's always this question of scale. Yeah, so we're 22 million on our own site. And then if you add Apple News and other places where people are actually reading, consuming our content, you get closer to 30 million and then you can okay. go from there. Um that is scale. I mean, in the sense that we're able to operate an organization of that size in a newsroom of roughly 
a hundred something full time journalists not losing around money. the world. That's that's good scale. I feel you're like we're serving money, readers. Right? So um, we're a privately held company, <laughs> and I'm not authorized to discuss our financials. There have been some reports. Right, uh, okay. about courts being profitable last well, year. Well, I mean, like everyone, like you're saying, like trying to figure out a working media model is is a hard thing. Um, and that's, you know, a large a large group to support on just about all on advertising alone. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of your question about scale, I think um, courts has, you know, at its fifth anniversary, we're at this size. Um, you know, we're roughly, in terms of audience, we're half- or larger, we're more than 50% the size of some of the biggest traditional business news organizations. And for five years in, that actually feels pretty good that we've made that headway while keeping this demographic um, of reader, while keeping the global professional reader and maintaining some identity for courts actually as a place that people know and and um, identify with and enjoy and see as a distinctive um place that that we publish so but we think we think the opportunity particularly if you look globally you know is much greater and Mm -hmm. um it's true sure it's true in the united states it's definitely true in europe places like india are really interesting because uh right now we're seeing uh there's been a price war in the in 4g data and the result is an explosion in media consumption on mobile phones because it's suddenly very cheap to actually read things on your phone and so that's among the macro forces that we have at our backs. And actually, you know, India, just India is not the principal one, but that's an example of, uh, uh, by having a global aperture, you wouldn't, you would never look at 22 million visitors to QZ.com and say that that was where you're going to stop. What's, what's the addressable market? You know, I, I think, um, I think that's a really hard, question to answer so i don't really know the precise answer but i think you know it looks like at least double where we're at today in terms of readers and you know because if you get too big then you're you're clearly just like being pulled off from the global business professional i don't know i mean i think that's a question that we'll continue to look at over the next you know the next over the coming years like we're investing in lifestyle that's meant content that's meant to reach serve a global business professional that is our frame for thinking about that and management career and workplace coverage which is and in addition we've expanded our teams in covering finance and economics and all of these uh, business areas so our bet is not we're not you know pivoting away from uh from uh, being a business news organization to find growth we're actually investing in it and finding that those investments are driving real reader engagement and actually growth in the number of readers that we reach. So how is it being a brand that's sort of built on globalism at a time of general backlash against globalism? Yeah. So so Quartz, you know, when we started five years ago, we were... We were it's a different time. Coming up, yeah, it was a different time. And we're coming up in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008, where it was clear that the world was very different than most people had realized, you know, what could be more solid than a European financial institution in terms of its uh, role in the in the global economy? Like, of course, that was totally the the lie of that was totally exposed. And the seismic changes of places like China having a much more significant influence and just this overall global. So that the founding sort of 
principle or framework or, or worldview of courts was that uh, we believed we don't have an editorial line. We don't have unsigned editorials. We try not to situate ourselves firmly in any part of the political spectrum. Well, we, we actually believe in openness as a value. And so... But that puts you in a part of the spectrum well, these days. I mean, we, we've got one side talking about building up walls and kicking people out um, and putting up tariffs. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to... Like, our view is that that actually transcends the political spectrum. So we believe in the open movement, basically, of people of ideas and of trade and our staff. So you didn't reassess when that was like rejected by a large portion of the electorate. Yeah, no, of course, you know, of course, you know, we talk a lot about that and very earnestly. And I think among the questions that I've posed to our newsroom and to myself is like, have we been uh, honest enough and upfront enough about with ourselves over the years and our coverage about the pain that the dislocation um, that that technology in particular and automation in particular has brought to the global economy. When you look at the research, technology is a much big, dri- dri- bigger driver of job loss than right. than free trade. And and it, when you look at the research, you see that free trade is actually a net positive to every country that engages in it. the The challenge, you know, as everyone knows, is that some people lose their jobs and some people gain their jobs. And is the, are we as a civil society, are we as our policymakers, mm-hmm. are we as businesses um, compassionate and lucid about that? So did you change to, to, to cover more of those type of issues? Uh, I mean, because it's a large thing. I think there's always been this this belief that as technology advances, sure, some people end up losing, but then more people end up winning. But I think that's sort of... Um, been called into question a little bit. We're automating everything. And when, when everything gets automated, I mean, you can see people in Silicon Valley talking about universal basic income because yeah. they've got real concerns that this is galloping ahead of where society is and, and where, and where government is. Yeah, I think, but you're, you're, you're bringing two things together. So there's automation and then there's just the open movement of people and goods and, and trade. And our, we're not, um, we're not unequivocally in favor of automation, um, and, but we are actually pretty, you know, not unequivocally, but pretty firmly in favor of open movement of people, of goods, and and ideas. Those are two different things. But but to your point, um, we are deeply engaged in the conversations and the kind of searching that people are doing globally. We've written tons about universal basic basic income, including pieces that are actually um, advocating for that by contributors and by members of our own staff. Uh, We have reporters who are spending all their time looking at the future of work from this lens of how do we make this transition and what does it mean for various members of our economy? And, you know, there's, there's specific regional aspects of this as well. Among the biggest crises, I think, globally right now that are the consequences of the backlash or the pushback against globalization are a group of engineers in um, India and their families who's, who had access to the global economy, who was plugged into the global economy via outsourcing deals or via access to visas to work in places like the United States. Um, there are lots of interesting dimensions of that, including uh, what that meant for their families and for trailing spouses and all of these dimensions. But um, we've seen a real sort of, you know, beyond identity crisis actually for that group of people who are brought up in the global economy. And that's something we're covering 
um, out of India and out of here, actually in great, you know, with great energy. And so for the next sort of five years, is the big story you think courts will be telling is the sort of fate of openness? across all these different areas? I think that's an interesting story. And I think, you know, among the the specific obsessions for coverage that we have right now are things like propaganda, which is, you know, one of the ways in which openness is challenged. So propaganda by governments um, and by, you know, commercial institutions on behalf of government sometimes and different, um, different players. I think, you know, the big, we're, we're in the middle of some major industrial and consumer and macroeconomic changes that have accelerated as a result of uh, technological advances. And, I, you know, the list of them is fairly obvious, um, but among them are artificial intelligence and automation and what that means for uh, workforce training, workforce uh, dislocation. There are lots of interesting um predictions and ways in which that could play out. I think that's probably, if I had to rank order them, that would be number one. But in terms of biotech and healthcare, the ability to um, edit genes, both in terms of um, tailoring out illnesses or other conditions and, um, you know, and actually helping people um, to, to treat them is actually, you know, has over the next five years is something that um, is going to be more and more real. And there are already glimmers of interesting ethical debates around cloning and tailoring, you know, sort of designer babies where you decide what hair color Mm -hmm. you want your child to have. So despite all this, you're still an optimist. Yeah. You know, we're engaged. And part of it is that the team of courts, you know, like myself has lived in different places around the world, sees huge benefits on a daily basis from working together and having the ability to reach readers and, and work with colleagues who are located on today courses journalists in five different continents. Mm -hmm. And so part of our energy around this is our own experience of it, which is positive and powerful and key to how we're able to approach this. And I think is core to how we connect with this group of readers, this group of global business professionals who are more tech savvy, a little bit younger, Mm -hmm. more female than male. Like that's a you know, that is, those are the people who we're writing for. And we're required to cover all of these issues with great honesty and, and uh, you know, interrogate ourselves when uh, there are moments where it feels like, oh, actually, maybe um, we should spend more time looking at the policies for minimizing the dislocation among workers because of automation right. and things like that. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, I am optimistic. Okay. So final thing is, um, after five years, what's something that that surprised you um, with the development of courts? Because you know, going into these things, I mean, everyone has has an idea about how things will pan out, and they some of them work, some of them don't. But there's always like a surprise or two. Yeah, that's a really good question. I probably need a little bit more time to think about it. But I think like one interesting thing is the extent to which uh, things that had been written off or felt kind of old and stale were actually capable of being revived. And this is for courts, but but true in the industry and you know the classic example is the email newsletter which mm-hmm. everyone kind of had neglected in podcasts man like who listens yeah. to podcasts and they're just really lame and you know you have some news organizations that had t- millions of of uh subscribers to their podcast who flipped the switch and turned them off because they didn't see any value in there yeah because they couldn't monetize them because they couldn't monetize them and so i think you know what 
One thing that's been cool and surprising, and as you mentioned, subscription offerings and paywalls is another thing that, I don't know, 10 years ago, people were, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, people were sort of kicking us in the shins constantly for right. for daring to have a paywall. And so I think the, I don't know what the lesson is to take away from this, but one of the thing is, things that's been surprising is the vitality of some of the forms that were actually written off. And part of the difference is people actually just going at them with new creativity and energy and you know, maybe it's cyclical. Maybe, you know, podcasts will feel super lame in five years and then another decade has to pass and yeah. then someone revives you know, them have, again. And we have a fashion brand now, Glossy, and and it's it if it's taught me one thing, it's everything comes back in fashion again. Yeah. Champion sweatshirts we should, we should are watch, really cool. No, so. we should watch fashion more closely for those exactly. lessons. Kevin, thanks so much. Okay, Brian, thank you. Uh, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. 